Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. We see this war in the Ukraine covered in the media in a, in a way that we haven't really seen uh, military conflict covered for a long, long time, um, arguably, if ever. And a lot of that is because of the 24-hour news cycle, because of the ubiquitousness of social media, uh, because of the amount of information flow that there simply is. Many are saying this is the, the first truly global war because we get such an insight from people on the ground, whether it's through Telegram or TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or any of the um, 24-7 media channels, whether it's CNN or BBC or Al Jazeera or Channel News Asia or whatever it might be. And an interesting thing is, because we are getting so much information all of the time, it often, which is a very good thing, I think, it does, of course, leave us potentially with a bit of uncertainty or an inability or a lack of opportunity to step back and actually reflect for ourselves as to what this war means for you and me. So that is the question I want to talk about this afternoon. Why should we bother? Why should I bother knowing about this war, caring about this war, thinking about this war? What does it actually have to do with me? Now, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, which, as you, you would all know, is the world's largest asset manager, he recently said in the, in the wake of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, he said, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has put an end to the globalization that we have experienced over the past three decades. Now, it's a big statement, but straight away with that statement, we see the relevance of this war for anyone in the world. Globalization is something that has affected all of us. Globalization has not just been about the globalization of trade and supply chains. It's been about the globalization of cultures, of mindsets, of systems of thinking, of politics, of geopolitics. And so arguably, based on Fink's assessment alone, that this war has effectively put an end to the kind of globalization that we have seen over the last 30 years. Anyone in the world, particularly anyone involved in the sectors that have experienced that globalization uh, in significant measure, arguably none greater than the banking sector, the international financial markets, anyone involved in trade, anyone involved in the movements of capital around the world, for those of us involved in those places, including the, the bank, the organization that all of you work for, this war has relevance. And I think as we unpack some of the issues around it, we'll see that it actually has relevance for absolutely everyone. But I think the commercial and financial pathway into understanding and making sense of this war, based on Larry Fink and you know countless other assessments of it, is very, very helpful. So when we think about why this might be relevant, why we should care, why I should care about the war in Ukraine, I want to unpack that through three things that I want to make the case this war has shown us and revealed for us in just the last six weeks. And it's done much more than this, but I want to talk about three things. Firstly, the nature of commerce. Secondly, the nature of people. And thirdly, the nature of love. So I want to make the case for you this afternoon that this war has revealed fascinating, fascinating things that are directly relevant to you and me, that are relevant to every individual and are relevant to us as societies and groups as well. And it's revealed those around the nature of commerce, the nature of people and the nature of love. First of all, then, the nature of commerce. 
Now, some of you will be familiar with a, with an old book on globalization, which was written kind of at the dawn of this most recent stage of globalization, if you like, I think around, you know, 20 odd years ago by a guy called Thomas Friedman, who's an economist. Um, the book was called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. Uh, and around that time, there was a, a theory or at least an observation that was made of this idea of peace through the golden arches. Some of you might have heard of this before, peace through the golden arches. And what this theory put forth, and it's, it's been true in at least some degree for a long time now, is that no two advanced industrial countries who have a McDonald's restaurant, at least one McDonald's restaurant, no two advanced industrial countries with a McDonald's has ever been at war with another country who also has a McDonald's since they both got their McDonald's. All right, so I'll just summarize the, the theory again. No two advanced industrial countries with McDonald's have ever been at war with each other subsequent to each of them getting their first McDonald's restaurant. Now, it seems a bit superficial and kitsch, but it actually makes a really, really important and insightful observation of really the last 50 to 100 years of whatever you want to call globalization or the, the growing integration and interrelationships uh, of commerce globally. And what the theory is basically saying is that commerce and trade is a path to peace. It's actually a very effective path to peace. Countries who are trading are far less likely to go to war. And so this kind of cultural integration, this cultural globalization, this dietary globalization, this financial globalization, can be personified in something like a McDonald's, right? So can be kind of captured through the McDonald's restaurant chain. And you could do it with a number of other things. You could look at, you know, when people in different countries are wearing Nike sneakers, or when people in different countries are, you know, have a certain threshold of Netflix subscribers or whatever it might be. But this was done through the McDonald's franchise. And they came up with this idea that no two advanced industrial countries with McDonald's have ever been at war since they got their McDonald's. Now, there are some minor exceptions Options. If you want to get literalistic about the principle, we've had conflicts in the Balkans and the Baltic states and, and some other places around the world, but arguably the theory has held the McDonald's theory of peace through commerce, peace, peace through the golden arches, peace through international trade has actually held up until six weeks ago, up until this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is significant. Whatever we think of the theory and whatever holes we want to punch in it, there has been a significant shift. This invasion marks something unique as compared with other military conflicts around the world. And we know that there are dozens of other military conflicts around the world that are underway right now. Some people get confused and even frustrated as to why this particular war is getting so much media. I would like to suggest that one of the reasons is probably because of this, probably because of this. Now we know for sure that trade commerce is not enough for peace. It's not enough for peace. We can't simply trade our way. We can't simply globalize our economics and our financial markets all the way to a peaceful world. The, the key to global peace, to world peace, has to be more than simply commerce and trading. And so that's the first of three lessons in relation to the nature of commerce that this war has already taught us. Firstly, that commerce is not enough for world peace. Global trade is not enough for world peace. Economics is simply not enough in itself to achieve peace. Secondly, and this is another interesting one that is related, we have learned also in relation to the nature of commerce that 
there is more to human motivation and human principle drivers than simply making more and more and more money. There's more to what people think is important. There's more to what success looks like than simply more money, higher GDPs, greater levels of trade. How do we know that? We know that because of the global response, with some exceptions, of course, but broadly speaking, the global response to this war has been not just through the sanctions regime, but also through countless political moves by governments, military moves by governments, and even moves by corporations, which is significant. Nations, individuals, families, companies, countless examples of all of these types of entities putting other things before money. Now, the easiest two examples are, of course, countries that are taking a hit to their GDP. They're taking a hit to their income. They're taking a, a hit to their export income by sanctioning Russia, by sanctioning the Russian corporations, by ceasing to do business in that country. That's costing people money. So companies and countries are actually bearing the cost of their decision to take a stand on, to take a stand against Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And that's very, very rare. In fact, when you go through history, it's almost unheard of, at least since the post-war reconstructions of the, the mid 20th century, that corporations with shareholder value that are literally and structurally designed to optimize shareholder value are willing to take a hit to their shareholder value. They're willing to take a hit to their bottom line for reasons of what can only be described as moral principle. So th three things that the nature of commerce has been revealed to be the case. Firstly, that commerce is not enough for world peace. We need something else. Secondly, that people are driven by more than just trying to make money. So our financial system might be built around making money. Our economic systems might be made, might be built around making money, but there is more to it. Thirdly, and this one's interesting, that while we know now and we see examples of the truth that there is more to human motivation than just, just making money, commerce can and is being used as an instrument of justice, as a moral agent. So we know that there is more to companies, there is more to countries, there is more to politics, there is more to trade and commerce than simply making money. This war has proven that. But the way that the international commercial system is being used and the way that the international system of economics and geopolitics is being used, fascinatingly, is now being used as an instrument of justice. And the, the sanctions uh, regime are the best example of this. So commerce still remains important. The nature of commerce is not enough for world peace, but it can be used as an instrument of morality and an instrument of justice. Now, whether or not you agree personally with how it's being used, that's a separate question. I'm not talking about that. The point is, it is being used for that. It is being used for that. So that and broadly across the global community, we see countless examples of it. Now, what does all of this reveal to us that we actually need as individuals, as companies and as countries going forward? If we are going to understand the nature of commerce, we know it's not enough for world peace. We know there's more to our global systems of trade and commerce than simply making money. But we also know that there is a human instinct to use commerce for moral good or for moral ends or to protect people, as many are arguably trying to do today. What does that point to that we need? What it points to is that we are all in need of guiding first principles. If we see that the international system of commerce and trade and banking and so forth, if we see the true nature of it, as I've explained it just now, one thing that needs to happen if all of that is going to work cohesively 
is that we need guiding moral first principles. We need to know, we need an objective reference point through which to know what it means to be human. Is our people of intrinsic and equal worth and dignity? Are people entitled to the, the right to life, the, the freedoms of thought and speech and conscience? On what basis can we say all of those things? So when we look carefully at the nature of commerce and what this war has revealed about it, what we come out with is the need for first principles. That's the first thing, okay? That's the, na the nature of commerce. Secondly, the nature of people. This war has taught us a lot about the nature of people. Most of what it's taught us, we already knew in some sense, but it has revealed and it has illuminated a lot of what we all on some level already knew and understood. We have seen so many different kinds of reactions and responses in a ground level context to this war that we can say a lot about ourselves as humankind as a result of it. There are people in Ukraine that have stayed behind who are literally putting themselves in harm's way to guard shelters, to guard underground uh, subway stations, to guard places of refuge, putting their lives at risk. And at the same time, there are other people involved in this war who are literally targeting and bombing maternity hospitals, trying to kill pregnant women and innocent children. So we see full scale just from within the war itself in a physical sense. At the same time, we also see that there are actually international non-Ukrainian people who are flying into the Ukraine to stand with the people of Ukraine and the Ukrainian army in defending their nation. People from all over the world, an international volunteer foreign legion, people putting their lives at risk who have literally nothing to do with this war apart from a moral commitment to justice and protecting the innocent from this invasion. So there are people doing that. We see that there are Russian people protesting against the war in Russia and having to undergo all kinds of negative consequences and oppressive consequences. They are being disappeared. They are being arrested. They are being hassled. They are being discriminated against. They are being persecuted simply for voicing dissenting opinions and views about the war itself. We also see from surrounding countries, from countries like Romania and Poland and countless others, literally millions of refugees being accepted with open arms and open hearts, sometimes into the actual homes and families of people who, again, have no national or ethnic or racial connection with the people of Ukraine, just through people wanting to extend an open heart and an open home to other people. And at the same time, in the midst of all of that, we are also seeing people at the other end of the spectrum who are exploiting the refugee outflow from Ukraine to recruit and kidnap children and women for the purposes of sexual slavery. Now, I've just listed off a bunch of very positive sounding and a few very negative sounding things. What does all of this tell us? These horrific and horrendous responses to the war that people are using to exploit for their own good and these incredible altruistic and kind of heart-lifting responses, examples of responses to the war on the other side. What it tells us is that the, the great Russian writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize winner, was absolutely right when he said that the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every man and woman. The line that divides good and evil cuts through every human heart. That tells us something about the nature of people. None of us are intrinsically good. None of us are intrinsically evil, but all of us have this capacity inside of us for good and for evil, and it flows out in different ways. Now, C.S. Lewis, to supplement Solzhenitsyn's point, says something very interesting and a little bit more directly relevant to the war itself. He said 
about war in general, C.S. Lewis writes that war does nothing to change the human situation. All it does is it aggravates the permanent human situation. He, Lewis and Solzhenitsyn are both talking about the same thing. They're talking about that intrinsic human brokenness that every single person has. And that has come out and is exemplified through, in my view, the very reasons for the beginning of this war in the first place. But it's also coming out again and again in various examples through various people on all sides of the conflict and through civilians and innocents uh, and people that are um, parts, parts of the military on both sides. It's coming out again and again and again that this intrinsic goodness and evil rests with people. So what does that tell us about the nature of people? What can we say? What can we conclude from that? We looked at the nature of commerce and we concluded from that, that what we need as a outflow of that, as an outcome of that, is that we need first principles. We need a very clear moral blueprint for how to treat people, how to decide between what's right and wrong. When we look at the nature of people, we see quite clearly because of our broken nature that this war has exemplified and demonstrated that we need some kind of a pathway to redemption. We are in need of a pathway to redemption. So the nature of commerce, when we consider this war in light of the nature of commerce, it shows that we need a guiding set of first principles. And when we consider this war in the context of the nature of people, it shows us that we need a pathway to redemption, all of us, not just everyone over there fighting, and not just the generals and the, the political leaders sitting behind the various sides of the war, but all of us need a pathway to redemption. Thirdly and finally, the nature of love. We've looked at nature of commerce, the nature of people. Thirdly and finally, the nature of love. Now, when we look through human history, and when we look just even now at our Spotify charts and our you know, favorite Disney Plus and Netflix and Amazon Prime movies, and when we look at what our poets are writing about and what our singers are singing about and what our dancers are dancing about, in the end, across worldviews, across races, ethnicities, countries, and even across historical epochs, we see that love continues to emerge as the supreme ethic. Most people across most worldviews, no matter what you believe, will agree that love is important. If not, people will agree that love is the most important thing. And we see that again. And even people that disagree with each other about this war will still agree in the abstract and separate to that, that love is actually an important thing. Everyone knows that. It's kind of on every human heart, all the way from you know Shakespeare to Beyonce to Taylor Swift to the poets to everyone, the philosophers, the political leaders, everyone knows deep, deep down that love is going to be important. You know, the black eyed peas, where is the love? The Beatles, all you need is love. Everyone's singing and dancing and writing about love all of the time. The problem we seem to have is there's no shortage of songs and poems and books about love over history. The problem is that we continue to struggle to show it. Now, this goes back to my second point a little, the intrinsic brokenness of all people. But when we look at responses to this war, there are some people and I'm going to just talk about the extremes. And I know most people sit somewhere in the middle, but just to highlight the, the problem, there are some people who are so blindly and prejudicially anti-Western, anti-America, anti-West, anti-NATO, that in their response to this war, they are unwilling to even acknowledge the atrocities that are occurring, the massacre at Bucha, the war crimes, the genocide, the forcible rape of people pillaging of a country, the full-scale invasion of a sovereign nation by a neighboring nation. Some people are so anti-Western and so incapable of engaging with what's happening in front of them that they ignore all of the atrocities that are happening. 
On the other side, some people are so anti-Eastern and anti-Russia that what they want from this war and are equally weaponizing their anger, weaponizing their grief, weaponizing their concern, they want to see not just the destruction of the Russian military and the Russian government, but they want to see all things Russian just taken down and destroyed. And anyone that has ever had anything to do with that country needs to be punished as well. Some, even though there are millions of Russian people inside Russia who are opposed to this war, who stand with Ukraine and much of the global community. Some people are just so anti-Russian that they don't really care. They think anything Russian, culturally, economically, financially, socially, familiarly, needs to be cast aside and needs to be punished. So what we see here when we think about the nature of love is that the kind of love that we need is going to have to do at least one thing. It's going to have to help us overcome our prejudice. We all have some built-in prejudices. And perhaps as I've been speaking, you've been getting a clear picture of where you fit along that spectrum, from right from the anti-East to the anti-West. It's interesting, you don't really hear that, hear that many nuanced expressions of opinion about this war. Most people come at it pretty hard from one side or the other. And I'm sure I'm not going to ask you to, to disclose it. Maybe you can ask me some questions afterwards um, in relation to this. But I'm sure we all know now when we take a moment to sit back and reflect where we sit on that spectrum. The point is we all have built-in prejudices. We all have some automatic presuppositions and biases that we need to overcome. And one of the things that the love that we all need to be empowered by and to feel. One of the things about that love is that it's going to have to be a brand of love that overcomes prejudice. It's going to have to be a brand of love that overcomes our prejudice, our anger, our discrimination, and our biases. It's going to have to do something else too. And this is probably even more difficult and more impossible to the human condition. The love that we need is going to have to alleviate suffering. And ultimately, it's going to have to deal with the greatest manifestation of human suffering, which is death itself. The greatest manifestation of human suffering, which is death itself. Now, I'll use another Russian writer, a former Soviet uh, journalist and author. Uh, his name was Vasily Grossman. Vasily Grossman. It's a great name as well. And he wrote, he wrote a lot of things very, very powerfully and beautifully. One of my favorite observations of his in writing about not this war, but previous wars is he wrote, it's horrible to see a city, the ruins of a city that has been destroyed by war. But it's even more horrible to see the cold body of a six-year-old who has been hit by a crossbeam as a result of war. And then he says this, he says, we can always rebuild the city, but there is no power on earth that can lift the eyelashes of a dead child. It's a powerful line. There is no power on earth that can lift the eyelashes of a dead child. And that's how humankind for thousands of years has struggled with this thing called death. It's why Dylan Thomas's poem, you know, is so resonant with every human heart. We rage against the dying of the light. Instinctively, there's something so wrong about death. And war just kind of brings that to the surface. When we see not just innocent people, but especially children who have been killed by this war, we see that the love that we actually need to come together as humankind needs to do, at the very least, these two things. As I've just explained, it needs to, first of all, empower us and equip us to overcome our prejudices. It needs to empower us and equip us to show love to and deal in a loving way with people that we disagree with. Not just about this war, but full stop. 
You need to be able to learn to love. The kind of love we need is such that we need to be able to learn to love those whom, whom we disagree with. And secondly, it's got to be a brand of love that somehow alleviates suffering and overcomes death. I know that's kind of an impossible two-pronged job description for the kind of love that we need. But one thing we know quite clearly is that humankind in our own strength are incapable of this love. Humankind in our own strength, is, are in, we, we are incapable of this love. So what we know then, looking at the nature of love, looking at this war in the context of the love that is needed, is that this love has to come from outside of ourselves. It has to, be a it has to come from a transcendent source. So now we look back on what I've been talking about. I've talked about the nature of commerce, the nature of people and the nature of love and how this war has revealed at least three things that flow out of each of these three things. The nature of commerce, when we look at that, we saw that what we need is a moral blueprint for how we're going to use commerce and money and our financial markets. We need a moral blueprint. We looked secondly at the nature of people. And we saw because of intrinsic brokenness that what we need is a pathway to redemption. And then we look at the nature of love and we see that we need a love that overcomes prejudice, that alleviates suffering, that tackles death for us. And we know that that needs to come from somewhere outside of ourselves because quite simply, we haven't been able to generate it in our own strength, which is one of the reasons that we keep going back to war all the time. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Christian message, fascinatingly and incredibly, offers all three of these things. And during this week leading up to Easter, it's a perfect time to highlight what it offers, because all of these things kind of come together, at least in relation to the Christian story, at Easter. So first of all, we see that the Christian message offers a blueprint for human dignity. It offers the first principles I've been talking about. How do we discern between right and wrong? According to the Christian message, every single person has been made in God's image. Every single person, Russian, Ukrainian, innocent, militant, whatever it might be. Everyone was made in God's image and therefore has intrinsic dignity and value. Intrinsic dignity and value. Now, that's probably the most important first principle out there, but we only get it through the Judeo-Christian tradition. And through the Christian tradition specifically, and the re reason it's relevant to Easter week, well, Christmas into Easter, if you like, is that not only did God make us all in his image, he then embodied that image as a person. So this is getting pretty powerful and compelling now. So according to the Christian message, we have a blueprint for discerning between right and wrong. We know that people are made, if Christianity is true, equal, and with intrinsic dignity and value. And God proved that by stepping into the world as a person and embodying the human form. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we know that we needed a pathway to redemption. What the Easter story tells us is that God stepped into the world as a person and took all of our suffering and brokenness that we talked about earlier onto himself and died on a cross doing away with all of that. And so because of that, we have this offer of forgiveness, this freedom from guilt, this freedom from shame, this offer of a new start, not just for all of the stuff that we've messed up, but constantly every day, a renewed set of new starts through a relationship with God. That's part of the part of the Easter and the Christian message. And thirdly, it all happens through a supernatural, sacrificial, outward facing love, the exact kind of love that we are not capable of ourselves, but we know that we need. And this is what God shows us at Easter, because he, when, when Jesus died on that cross and then rose from the dead, he did that for everyone. 
not just people who loved him, not just people who knew him, not just Christians. He did it for all people. In fact, he was loving the people who were killing him while they were killing him. That is outward facing sacrificial love. It's not a man-made love. It's a supernatural transcendent love. It's a love exactly like what I was talking about that we are incapable of in our own strength. It's a love unaffected by prejudice. It's a love unaffected by political views. It's a love unaffected by what you think about race or ethnicity. It's a love unaffected by all of that and it's outward facing, it's sacrificial. Whereas most human love is very inward facing. It's about what I like, what I love, what I want, what I desire. That's the natural human posture in terms of loving things and loving people. It's based on desire. God's love is not based on desire, it's based on sacrifice. So incredibly, we see that this Easter message perfectly fulfills the three big needs that I've highlighted that flow out of our renewed understanding of this war. The war teaches us things and will continue to teach us things about the nature of commerce, the nature of people and the nature of love. But what the Easter message and the Christian message tells us is that all three of those lessons we learn point to human needs, whether it's first principles, whether it's the need for a pathway of redemption, and whether it's a supernatural source and brand of love. And according to the Christian message, we can all have all of those things. And the final thing I will say is that that invitation into all of that is universal. It's for everyone. It's completely non-exclusive. Every single person. A lot of this war is being fought on the basis of land, on the basis of race, on the basis of political and ethnic and cultural histories and, and the conflict that comes up when all of that clashes and comes together. But this Christian message is the exact opposite. It's completely inclusive. It's completely universal. It's open to absolutely everyone.